Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 12 of Unknown Orbits, When Worlds Collide, by Edwin Balmer and Philip Wiley. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitzey. Today's episode is about one of the most, I don't want to overstate it, but it's a very important novel in the history of science fiction, When Worlds Collide. It was published originally in uh, Blue Book magazine in serial form at the end of uh, 1932 into 1933, and it was published in book form in 1933. It was a major bestseller, a very popular book, and it was uh, adapted in 1951 into a spectacular disaster movie. That was George? George Pal. Okay. So, When Worlds Collide tells the story of astronomers and a lot of this is going to sound very familiar and that's part of what this episode's all about astronomers discover two rogue planets headed for earth they determine that in eight months they will pass close enough to earth to cause massive earthquakes and tidal waves which will devastate a majority of mankind and after swinging around the sun the planets will return and one of them will smash directly into earth destroying it completely A plan is devised to build a giant rocket ship in secret to send survivors to the second planet, which appears to be habitable. As the planet is racked with disasters, mobs attack the installation and kill many of the scientists and engineers, but still they manage to hold them off long enough to be able to finish the second ship. Oh, I'm sorry, they build two ships. They have built two ships. Uh, The first one is uh, uh, the original plan, and then they because they discover that they're doing such a good job of building the the rocket ship and solve all these problems. They build a second one, and they blast off just in time to avoid the Earth being destroyed. And as they are climbing into space, they see other rockets from other nations rising up into the stars. Now, that is the novel, not the movie. No, let me finish this. And then they land on the second planet. They get off the spaceship, and it's habitable, it's Earth-like, and that's the end of the book. Now, there was a sequel... After Worlds Collide, which tells the story of what happens after they land on that planet. I'll get into that in a little bit. But um, if you thought that any of that sounded familiar, there's a good reason for that. This book was extremely influential on disaster movies. It was the first, as far as I know, it was the first, I don't know whether it was the first uh, end of the world, world gets destroyed science fiction novel, but the movie definitely was the very first world-gets-destroyed disaster movie. Now, there were many disaster movies prior to 1951. It was always a popular genre, going all the way back to the days of Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, He put out a number of uh, disaster-type movies. There was movies like Earthquake, which is about the San Francisco earthquake, Hurricane by John Ford, which depicted a tropical island being devastated by a hurricane, so there were, there were disaster movies, but they were always, you know, limited in scope. When, the world, when Worlds Collide was the first one where they actually destroyed the world. So the book is very well written. 
And there's a reason for that. Now, Edwin Balmer, as uh, far as I can tell, he's a was a very undistinguished writer. Really didn't do much in his career. I'd almost compare him to Louis Charbonneau, who was the author of Corpus Earthling in our last episode. Only wrote a handful of books by himself, and none of them were very distinguished. However, his co-writer, Philip Wiley, was a very skilled writer, very talented writer, who did write a number of other books on his own that were very well-received and important. As a matter of fact, let's see if I have the actual number here. A number, I think it was nine. Nine of his stories or books were adapted into movies or television shows, which is a pretty good record for any writer, really. He was a very interesting guy. He was the advisor to the chairman of the Joint Congressional Committee for Atomic Energy, which later became the Atomic Energy Commission. And this is a guy who didn't even graduate from college, uh, but he's a very smart guy. He was uh, an expert on orchids. He wrote a very important book on orchids. So he was he was like that prototypical science fiction writer of the 1930s, 1940s, who was basically a, a smart guy with a lot of varied interests, who used all of that knowledge to write very well done and very interesting science fiction stories. Some of the books that he wrote uh, later were similarly, they were dystopian. He wrote a lot of dystopian novels. Uh, One of them called The Disappearance is where all the women of the earth disappear and then the men that are left behind have to figure out how to uh, get get on without women. Tomorrow, which is a, a book about nuclear war, and then he wrote a, uh, a TV episode for a TV show called The Name of the Game, L.A. 2017, which was about an ecological disaster that destroys L.A., directed by a very young Steven Spielberg. So he was he was very much a specialist in dystopian disaster-type stories. They were all provocative. They, they all touched on social issues and like the uh, the disappearance uh, where the women disappear touched on homosexuality and women's rights and and women's role in society and uh, the nuclear war one of course that you know talked a lot about you know the impact of trying to fight a nuclear war and during the cold war so he was a very good talented writer wrote a lot of really entertaining books very influential so philip wiley is uh somebody that we may come back to at some point later in this show and look at some of his other stuff. I, I believe he also wrote a lot of uh, really well-done short fiction. I just can't recall I'm at sure. the moment. He, he was fairly prolific. He wrote throughout his life and uh, you know, and was a success in, in numerous decades. I mean, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, well, in, in the early 1970s, he was, he was a successful writer. Um, and a significant, relevant writer uh, as well. Now, getting back to When Worlds Collide, as I said, it was a bestseller, and it was a highly influential book. One of the immediate influences was that the creators of the Flash Gordon comic strip totally ripped off the idea of going in a rocket ship to the a rogue planet passing by, and, and that was uh, uh, Mongol, uh, the planet Mongol, Oh. Ruled by Ming the Merciless, so that was that idea was completely stolen from When Worlds Collide, so that was very, uh, you know, very because Flash Gordon went on to be extremely popular and influential in science fiction. So well, then, there was a spillover from the novel that extended its influence, 
by being basically ripped off by the creators of Flash Gordon. Well, then I have to mention a book. I think of every time I see the movie. I see it like once a year anyway. And previously, I thought When Worlds Collide ripped off this book. But now, looking at the timing, I realize it was the other way around. However, slightly different take. Imagine the... It's called The Big Eye by Max Ehrlich. Mm -hmm. And imagine the plot of When Worlds Collide, the exact same plot, except... No spaceships. It's it's just nothing but waiting for the planet to, to collide. That's an interesting idea. But as I said, I, I don't know, I can't say definitively that this was the first The World Gets Destroyed novel by a science fiction writer, but it certainly had to be one of the one of the first. Well, uh, Ehrlich was 1949, so it was yeah. way after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking, you know, it wasn't the first science fiction disaster novel. I mean, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells certainly would qualify as a worldwide disaster science fiction novel. And there may I'm sure there was probably a few other stories and novels written between H.G. Wells and, and 1933. But its influence and its, and its popularity certainly made it a, an important landmark uh, in science fiction. There were some other uh, things that he wrote that were also ripped off. I mean, this is, reading about Philip Wiley, I'm so impressed by him. Um, he wrote a book, I can't, I don't think I wrote down the name of it, that was about a uh, a Superman. It was a Superman comp, which was obviously ripped off not only by uh, Siegel and Schuster for Superman, but also was very similar to the character of Doc Savage, who was created very shortly after he published that book. Um, so he was influenced in that way. And one, and just to give you an idea of what, what an interesting and, and smart guy he was. He wrote a book in 1945 called The Paradise Crater, which resulted in his house arrest by the federal government. That was him with Campbell. No, no. Was he the one? I thought that was a different writer. Oh, Maybe it I, was him. Well, well, I take that back. Okay. Then. What Steve's referring to is, is there was a famous incident where John Campbell... And, and this was not, a, there were a lot of smart people, any scientists and, and, and engineers who understood the potential for nuclear energy to be turned into a bomb. There, there were stories of radium bombs and atom bombs going back into the 1930s in science fiction magazines. I think um, Wells did one with radium. Yeah. I mean, the radium bomb was a common device in science fiction by 1940s. Uh, so, but... John W. Campbell deliberately got one of his writers, and maybe it was Philip Wiley, but I, something tells me it wasn't, to write a story about that was that nailed the details of an atomic bomb, basic how basically atomic bombs worked, and he published it in uh, 1945, and the FBI came and paid him a visit at his office, and it was not pleasant. They thought he had stolen secrets or had secrets leaked to him from the, from the Manhattan Project. And he was able to clear himself, but for a while there, he was in serious trouble with the FBI. But he did it deliberately because it, guess what it did? It, it sold copies of Astounding Magazine. So it was a, almost a stunt on his part that he knew would probably antagonize the government. Well, if it wasn't Wiley that that, I, that was the person who wrote that book, then he did the same thing uh, in 1945 and, and wound up in house arrest. He wrote a book about post-World War II 
1965 Nazi conspiracy to develop and use uranium-237 bombs. So, an um, interesting guy. I hate to be that way about it, but you mean uranium-238? I could have mistyped that. That's entirely possible. Okay. Or maybe that they changed it to 237 to make it not exactly. You know, that was their trying to evade the authorities by, well, it's fictional because there is no such thing as uranium-237. <laughs> so, I don't know. But Philip Wiley... Great author, When Worlds Collide, an important and popular work of fiction. Now let's talk a little bit more about the movie. I really want to just say something about the opening. Obviously, you're you're a big fan of the, of the movie. Yes. And I love the fact that it opens in classic 1954 science fiction big budget movie with a reading from the Bible. Yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you know. It, it, it's 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 a wonderful mix of dr- serious drama and lighthearted episodes and and spectacle. I mean, it's it, it's it's definitely a very spectacular movie. I love the so in the book. I forget who the main character is. It's been a while since I actually read it, um, but I think he was an engineer or a scientist or something. In the movie, they create this everyman character. He's the the pilot that has to fly the films from the observatory that discovered the rogue planets in total secret and deliver them to the scientists in New York to verify the discovery of the other scientists in South Africa. So the pilot of, uh, of this plane is like this the classic everyman character played by this very engaging actor who's, who's just perfect for the part. And who, who looks quite a lot like someone I was just trying to remember. He looks a little bit like Danny Kaye. That's, yes. Yeah, that's he's, like the, a, he's like a tall version of Danny Kaye. And of course, he meets the daughter of the main scientist, and she falls in love with him, and it's a love triangle with this doctor who's working on the project. You know, And because he falls in love with the, the chief scientist doctor, he gets a, a spot on the rocket ship that flees Earth. And So it's, it's very clever filmmaking to, to make the main character a very everyman sort of a character not one of the scientists or anything. So it's very well done in that regard. The villain is, he's an actor you'd recognize if you saw him because he was in a million things in the 1950s and 1960s. Wait, um, wait, which one? The the villain in the movie, the industrialist. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who, he put, the, there's an industrialist who puts up the money for the project. It says, I get a, a spot on the rocket ship. Twilight Zone, the episode where the bus pulls over in a storm and there are supposed to be six passengers, but seven come off. Yeah. That's him. I, I don't remember that one. But you'd see, you'd recognize if you ever saw him. Uh, so anyway, so, so he's in a wheelchair, and he's mean as hell. And I'm watching it. I just recently rewatched Alien Prometheus not too long ago. And for those of you, I hope I'm not spoiling this for you, but for those of you who remember that movie, the industrialist who created the whole uh, expedition to go to this planet where the uh, engineers, the alien race who created life on Earth and uh, are also responsible for creating the aliens, they go to that planet and then turns out he's on the spaceship and he's just this, this mean old guy in a wheelchair and he's like, I want to live forever. I want to find the secrets of eternal life. And it's like, that's the same guy that was in <laughs> Worlds Collide. They just totally ripped that right out of that movie. So that's just one example of how influential that, that movie is. Let's let's look at 
end of the world disaster movies. We've had quite a few over the last 20 or 30 years. And I love them. I really do. So you got movies like uh, Deep Impact, Armageddon, Independence Day. Those movies were all deeply influenced by When Worlds Collide because they all have the same basic structure. You've got a small group of professionals who are in charge of saving the world. And the rest of the world is panicking and fighting and civil war breaks out as as the meteor gets closer or the aliens start bombing cities or whatever it is. Kind of a thread in War of the Worlds. Well, yes. I mean, there. I'm trying to think. I wouldn't say that when worlds collide was heavily influenced by War oh, of the I Worlds. Oh, I wouldn't. Was War of the Worlds first? Yes. Yeah, that oh, was that was okay. that was one of his Wells's first novels. I think the late 1800s, 1890. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the movie where oh, you have a, a small group trying oh, yeah. to save the world and 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 the panicky people well, around them. Well, and that might have Here's the thing. War of the Worlds was like 1953 when Worlds Collide was 1951. So, if anything, the movie version of War of the Worlds was probably influenced by When Worlds Collide. But the idea that a small group of individuals are working to save the world or save a small part of humanity, the fact that you have uh, only a certain number of people can, can be saved and survive. And, all, and then, of course, you have all this glorious technicolor destruction. And that's a, a big part of this movie. Although their budget was limited and they had to use still paintings uh, in parts of the movie. And if you're and if you understand that and you're kind of watching for it, it's a little disconcerting when you say, "Oh, they're they're just showing a painting right now." They wanted to actually oh. produce those scenes, but because they what they did is they took the production paintings that were done by the famous Chesley Bonestall. He's a he's the science fiction artist of the 1940s, 1950s. All of those paintings of gleaming, pointy spaceships and men walking on the moon and the moon rising over the earth and all of those paintings all done by one man chesley bonestall highly influential he he did uh, work for nasa many movies used him as their technical consultant so he he did a bunch of paintings for the movie for production they, they were they were going to build sets based off of his paintings but they ran out of money, so they just took the paintings. Well, that just, final scene really does show. Yeah, that that's very much a painting. But still, there's still great scenes of destruction. There's a scene where New York is hit by a tsunami. They show a variety of mountains collapsing and bridges collapsing, and it was for its day. It was uh, it was a pretty well made technically proficient disaster movie i know a little bit about the practical special effects with models there was a lot of that yeah the technology they would have used would have been unchanged into the 70s with the uh, big disaster movies right and and actually the kings of modern disaster movies roland emmerich and toby what's his name but it's it used to it's now roland emmerich is doing them by himself so all of those uh, Moonfall and Independence Day and 2021, what was it, 2021, 2024? Was, was it 2012? 2012, 2012. All of those disaster movies, they still use a lot of practical effects like models and, and in-camera effects. So that's still being carried on to this day. It's not, it's not all done with CGI. 
so, you know, that movie was, was well made for its day. You know, people like Steve and I, it's still, we still fondly enjoy that movie every now and then. But here's a very interesting little fact. The movie Deep Impact, if you remember, that's the movie where, that's the other Meteor movie from the 1990s, not Armageddon. It was made at the same time as Armageddon. And it was, uh, it starred, um, who was in that movie? Oh. Yeah. Okay. That one character actor, he was big in there. Yeah. Uh, And then that woman. And then that woman. Tia. Yeah. Married to the X-Files guy. Yeah. Duchovny's wife. uh, Whatever whatever her name was. So that movie was original going all the way back to the 1970s. Well, first of all, before I go to that, before the, the original movie was made in 1951, Cecil B. DeMille wanted to make a version of the movie. So he had the rights to the movie throughout the 1940s. Wow. And he was planning to make a version of the movie, but he wasn't able to get it done. The rights reverted to somebody else, and it got made by George Pell. But starting in the 1970s, there was an attempt to remake When Worlds Collide, and that eventually morphed into Deep Impact. Deep Impact came out of the attempt to combine When Worlds Collide with the Hammer of God, which is the, the oh, Arthur C. Uh, Clarke movie about a giant asteroid destroying Earth. Uh, yeah, the the book. I'm not sure if I read it now. Yeah. So they, they had to option those two books, and they were going to make a movie out of that, and remake of World, When Worlds Collide. But various people got involved. At one point, Steven Spielberg got involved. He was going to direct it, but then something else came up, and he wasn't able to. So... It eventually became Deep Impact. And if you watch that movie, it's got a lot of where When Worlds Collide in it. It's got scenes where the uh, people are fleeing to the mountains and the tsunamis are coming way inland, wiping out the coastal cities when New York gets destroyed. It's got the uh, the small number of survivors uh, gathering together at the end. And then, but, you know, but it also has, you know, the, they don't stop the, asteroid in that movie like they do in armageddon it it hits and it wipes out a, a significant part of the planet well and that's that's the first meteor there's a second one. Oh, that's right i'm, I'm misremembering that but part of the ma- the asteroid does hit and wipes out a significant part of the world Shay leone that's the actress and that great scene where she re- reunites with her father played by maximilian shell one of my favorite actors ever. And they reunite on the beach just as a giant tidal wave comes and wipes them out. You know, it's a very touching scene. So it, it's got that part of it. And um, I'm trying to think. There was one other part that's right out of where Worlds Collide, but I can't remember. You, you kind of skipped over, though. In both movies, there were two things happening. Oh, coming. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In When Worlds Collide, there was a smaller planet that came by first. And, and created and all huge... the tsunamis and earthquakes. Yeah. yeah. So there was an initial, and then, then the, the, the planet killer was, was coming up next. But yes. that And then I'm, I'm remembering the other part. The other part is the idea of a lottery, where the government had a lottery, and if you won the lottery, you could bring your family to the the mountain fortress where you would be safe from the initial impact and you would, you would survive. So that's right out of the book as well. Yes. So if you look at other disaster movies of the last 30 years, you can see pieces of when worlds collide in them. 
2012, where they, they have the big arcs, where people are selected by lottery or some system, and they go into these arcs that are supposed to save portions of humanity. That's right out of the book. And just the whole idea of, of this planet-wide disaster where you, you know, in Armageddon, they blow up Paris. In, uh, I'm trying to think, some of the other landmark movies where the, the asteroid or the tidal wave hits a major landmark. Well, they, yeah, they always go for the landmark. Yeah. So, I mean, that that came out of When Worlds Collide. And that aspect of, dis- which is now almost like required in a disaster movie where you've, you've got to have the landmarks being attacked or blown up or, you know, buried under 150 feet of water or whatever it is. Yeah, the Statue of Liberty torch hits a car or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a, it, it's an extremely important and influential book, and the movie adaptation that was made from it is also important and influential. And it's fun. It's a, it's a fun read. After Worlds Collide, the sequel is... I remember reading it way back in my teenage years. Our library had a copy of both books. And I totally, I remember really enjoying it. But then I went back and looked at the synopsis. And it's basically kind of an anti-communist manifesto. It's about how the the British and Americans land on, on this planet. And they're, you know, getting along well. But the Japanese, German, and Soviets land on the planet too and they form this evil alliance of uh, fascism and communism uh, that it's like they were compare it to a ant hive mind I mean it's just they're completely dehumanized <laughs> casual racism. you know and they're like they're like total villains they're like enslaving people and and forcing them to into forced labor and there's an ancient civilization, alien civilization that's dead that they find the cities and the remnants of. And so, I mean, it's almost like an Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, really. I'd actually, if I if I get around to it, I'm, I'm going to look it up and, and give it another read. I did read it, and I you remember more about it than I do. But my... Well, I actually, I reread the, the plot synopsis because my memory of it was it was more like an Edgar Rice Burroughs sort of an adventure. I felt it was 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 tepid it's yeah. just it didn't and i wonder if it was written significantly after the first no actually it was uh like a year well, like a year really? after the first yeah it's not exactly anti-communist it's more like anti-axis powers well though. i mean you think about it it's ni- 1934 1935 so who who were the bad guys then you yeah. know it was the russians the german nazis and the japanese imperialists you know, so they were the standard villains of the day. So, so uh, I don't know. You have any other thoughts on it? Tiny things. As much as I love the movie, I like to I like to point out that one of the clunkiest lines in 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 a movie. I always hate it when they talk in a character's metaphor. So you have the doctor talking to the pilot, and they're they're like about to get into a fight. And they start saying things, well, what's your prescription, doctor? And that just drives me crazy. Yeah, there was that. But, you know, not a lot of it. Uh, it it's, it's very much a movie of its time, but, but not in a way that, in my opinion, seriously dates it. Well, yeah, I would have guessed it was written post-war, frankly. Yeah. I, I was surprised it was 1933. Nope, 19, 1933. All right, well, that's it for episode 12. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. 
Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.